Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Jeremy Pettis, and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend... Dr. Steve Edelman. And this is the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. So today's episode is going to be on what we're calling the science of type 1 diabetes. Really what's going on in the world of type 1 diabetes research, what's exciting and preventing and kind of the cure realm, if you will, with type 1 diabetes. Steve? Yeah, and there's there's a lot going on in this field, and it's actually extremely exciting. So, Jeremy, why did I get type 1? <laughs> well, we will get to that. So I think, you know, like we, we were talking about earlier, like why are we talking about this? Well, you know, Steve and I were both diagnosed with type 1 when we were 15, and we're talking about when we were both diagnosed, we were told that there would be a cure in 10, 15 years. And I don't care if you talk to a person with type 1 diabetes that is 5 or 95, they'll tell you the same thing. There's a cure that's kind of like right around the corner. It always seems like it's, it's, just, it's just, just been there, but yet nothing is happening. And we're here today to tell you that there actually is stuff happening. All right. To start off, one of the early comments I have for you is, when do you think there'll be a cure for type 1? <laughs> I would say probably 10, 10 to 15 years. years. You're full of crap, just like the rest of those doctors <laughs> that told me that. I think we're getting there. But I also made the comment that, you know, we used to end our type 1 conferences at TCYD, the big like in-person conferences, with this kind of like what was on the horizon talk. And I kind of felt like I was really digging deep to, to think of topics. And honestly, it left the day kind of a bummer because there just wasn't a lot of hope. And we're going to get into some things that like are potentially going to be approved in the next you know weeks to months from when we're recording this. And if you're listening to it later, some of these things might actually be approved. So things are happening really here and now. Yeah, and I, I really think we're on the cusp of coming up with a disease-modifying therapy, not just treating high blood sugars. Yeah. And a little history on that. You know, people say, why to like always 10 to 15 years? Well, you know, we discovered back in the 70s, really, that type 1 was an autoimmune disease. And so once we discovered like a little bit about what was causing it, it was just kind of a natural thinking that we'll have a, a cure kind of right around the corner. And there are some specific things about type 1 diabetes that, that delay the progress. I mean, you look at other autoimmune diseases, rheumatoid arthritis, inflammatory bowel disease, even multiple sclerosis, there's all these new therapies. So it's, it's natural to wonder, where are the therapies for type 1? And we'll get into the pathophysiology, but, but type 1, it's really difficult to study and it's difficult to treat for a couple key reasons. Number one, beta cells don't grow back. So once you lose our beta cells, Steve and I am looking at deep into Steve's eyes here, and we, we just don't have <laughs> beta cells. And, you know, I wish they could grow back, but they don't. You pass so, the tissues, please. So, yeah. So that means you only really get one shot at trying to save them. It's not like an inflammatory bowel disease, for example, where you're constantly kind of re regenerating your cells and your colon or whatever, and you kind of have multiple opportunities to try to treat it. Beta cells, they die. They don't come back. And the other thing is the pancreas is really, really hard to, to investigate. You know, these cells are buried within the pancreas. You can't really biopsy them. You can't image them. So even if you have a therapy, it's hard to know what the heck's going on in the pancreas. And so there are some reasons. It's not that investigators have been sitting on their hands for decades. It's, it's a difficult disease to study. Yeah, and from my perspective, and you have a, lot, a much deeper background in immunology than I do, is that, you know, the immune system is incredibly sophisticated, complicated, always changing. And the immune system that you're going to explain in a few minutes that, that attacked our beta cells when we were 15, it's still in our bodies. Oh, yeah. So you can't just say, I'll take a transplant, I'll take some myelin cells and, and go home and you're cured because that same immune system that we have would attack it and destroy it. So right. that's been the big pushback. So that, you know, what is type 1 diabetes? So let's talk about that. Well, we know, I mentioned it's an autoimmune disease, and that means that 
your immune system, Steve was just talking about, um, goes awry and it attacks and destroys the, the beta cells of your pancreas. And it really is a specific surgical attack on this one cell type. The islet cells or the islets in the pancreas are these small little, another word for islet is actually island. It's these little islands in the pancreas that contain the beta cells. And right next to the beta cells are cells like the alpha cells that make glucagon. We all know what glucagon is. It raises our blood sugar. There's delta cells. There's epsilon cells that do different hormones. And it's just these beta cells that the immune system doesn't like for some reason. And there's I mean, lots of theories about why that is. Um, but ultimately, it, it thinks it's something bad. You know, I, I look at the glass half full picture. Thank goodness it's very specific. Just think if it was a immune attack of our entire pancreas or the heart or the liver, but it's, it's amazing. This one very specific cell that produces insulin and this other hormone called amylin. But Jeremy, do we know <clears throat> why the body, why the immune system goes awry? No, we don't like full stop. We don't, there's lots of theories and you know, I'm a big believer in that it's probably different triggers for different people. I think if we were looking for the trigger that, you know, set off this autoimmune thing, we probably would have found it by now. People have blamed, you know, viruses, specifically these Coxsackie viruses that people get hand, foot, and mouth disease. There's a, um, a part of that virus, a part of the amino acid structure that looks very similar to proteins made in the beta cells. So people hypothesize, well, if the, the immune system recognizes this as a virus and the beta cell is just slightly different, it makes sense that it could kind of jump over to the beta cell. And people blame vitamin D and, you know, things that are going on with breast milk and early gluten and nothing's really kind of panned out. The stat that I, you know, mentioned earlier is that if you have type 1 diabetes and you have an identical twin, there's about a 50% chance that that identical twin will get type 1 diabetes. So I like to use that as a rough estimate to say, well, clearly there's a genetic component. You have an identical twin, you have essentially the same genes. But if it was just genes, then there would be a 100% chance that the other twin would get it. In this case, it's 50%. So there's something else going on in the environment. And again, identical twins, they tend to grow up together and do all the same stuff together. So what is triggering one and, and not the other? We just don't know. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, it's interesting how type one is so sporadic. As you mentioned before, most type ones do not have someone in their family with type one. Type twos is completely different. You know, 80% of people with type two have a family member. So, you know, it's it's fun comparing and contrasting them. We're not going to do that during the whole show today, but they are two completely different conditions. Mm -hmm. So the other thing that is really pertinent to our discussion today is actually not just talking about, you know, what type one diabetes is from an autoimmune perspective, but when type one diabetes, quote unquote, starts. So we all think of like, you know, I got type one, I went into DK when I was 15 and you were 15. Truth be told, we had had type one very likely for years before that. This autoimmune process starts years. We could have been 9, 10, 11, 12, who, who knows? We didn't really check our antibodies. And we're realizing that now as a community that type one starts long before the symptoms occur. Yeah. And I think that's a good point because we didn't have the test to measure the antibodies back then. We didn't even know what the antibodies were. Nowadays, we can measure antibodies, we'll get to that, and identify people long before they present with type 1, which creates an opportunity to intervene. Totally. And so the process usually is that this immune system gets triggered, and it's almost this like one-by-one one destruction of the beta cells. And I'm making this little hand gesture that Steve likes, but you guys can't see. 
a little killing hand. Looks like you're milking a cow. <laughs> yeah, but I'm, I'm killing beta cells. I'm kind of squishing them. Well, you have that one video too. Yeah, yeah. But you can actually see these these beta cells getting destroyed in kind of real time, and this process happens very slowly over time, over years. And it's not till you get down to about 20% of your beta cells that are left, meaning 80% of them are dead, that you go into DKA or get you know high blood sugars. So people will usually say, well, you know, they can associate in their head when they got type one, something that happened. Like, I don't know about you, like, but right before I got type one, I had a really bad flu. And I remember thinking for the longest time that that flu gave me type one diabetes. I thought you went to Chili's first. I went to Chili's. It was the baby back ribs that like, you know, but I had the flu. Um, those ribs were delicious. You know, <laughs> I still go back there. I don't have any bad you know, memories of Chili's. I love Chili's. Okay. Um, but anyways, um, People will think, you know, it was that trigger or, you know, pregnancy is another one or a car accident or some kind of stressor. And what usually happens is that, yeah, you've had this autoimmune process going on for years. Your, your beta cells are kind of hanging on by a final thread and there's some last stressor. And in my case, it was the flu and some baby back ribs that kind of pushed me over the edge. So it wasn't that final cold or whatever that that caused it. It was, it was the, the final stress. And people love to blame something or find a reason. Oh, you know, I ate, you know, gluten two days earlier and it doesn't work like that. I don't, did you have any trigger? You know what? It's so important you mentioned that because a lot of people still are like fighting in their own minds what caused them to get type one. And they have crazy theories and I don't blame them. Some people like to know, but for anybody out there with type one, you know, as you, as you mentioned, Jeremy, you, you've had it years before they came down with the, the visible disease. And we just don't know what causes type one. And most people who have type one do not have a relative with type one. Yep. Just like you and I. Yep. We're the only ones in our family. Only cool kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were talking though, like, you know, depending on if you call us brothers or not, you know, then, then we'd be a family, but I guess we're not brothers. We're just friends. So we're brothers with a different <laughs> mother. You know that. I've said so, that a bunch of times. Here's the good news. We now have ways of, of measuring these antibodies in the blood um, that can predict if somebody's going to develop type 1 diabetes. Or if this, a better way of saying that is identifying that the immune process of type 1 diabetes has already started. And there's about four or five of these antibodies that we can test now with pretty, like almost any lab can test these. These are common antibodies that are available now. And the way this works is when we talk about you know, before somebody clinically comes down with with uh, type one diabetes, three different stages of, if you want to call it pre-type one or early immune activation, um, that show us the process of the immune system. I'm going to kind of walk through these because it's important when we talk about these stages because it, it, it's different places where we can potentially intervene. So the first one we call stage one. It's a great name. It just tells you what's going on. <laughs> we kick the names around a it's lot. The first stage. Yeah, stage one. Um, and stage one is defined as that you have two or more of these antibodies present in the blood. And it's not how much of the antibodies or how high the titers are. Simply once these antibodies become present, you know, at least two of them, we know that you essentially have developed autoimmune type 1 diabetes. Your blood sugars are normal at this stage. Um, but at this stage, the chance of you getting type 1 diabetes in the next five years is about 50%. And the lifetime risk is 100%. Right. So it's a, it's a critical time. You have no symptoms. You never would have tested unless you were worried about it in the first place. And we can talk about screening later. Yeah. So we're definitely going to get into like, you know, your, your ears are perking up. Well, how do I know if I have these antibodies? We're going to get there. So hang tight. Keep listening. So next after stage one is, I forget the name. What is it? Uh, I think it's stage two. Stage two. Yeah, that's actually what it is. 
<laughs> so stage two is next. And at stage two, you still have these two antibodies, but you also have what we call dysglycemia. Mm-hmm. Steve D-Y-S. likes that word. <laughs> I, I love that word because it, it's kind of a code word for your blood sugars are messed up just a little. But, but if you did a formal diabetes test, you would come out normal. Yeah. So you're, it's already showing some physical signs, but not into florid diabetic ketoacidosis. Yeah, it's not a code word. It's just the definition. I like to call it a code <laughs> word. Because it sounds cooler that way. Yeah. So yeah, you have two antibodies, but your blood sugars are a little high. Completely normal otherwise. But your five-year risk is now 75%. You're getting closer to that you know, clinical diagnosis of type 1. Stage three is then when you've got the antibodies, you've got glucose intolerance, and now you've got some symptoms. So this is really where we would say this is time that people would normally go to the hospital or it's like they've initially been diagnosed. So those are the three stages that I would call pre-kind of classic type 1 diabetes. But again, the important concept here is that we're calling all of this type 1. When you're in stage 1, you have type 1 diabetes. And again, that's really so important because it changes our whole mindset. And instead of saying we're intervening at somebody who's at risk, we're saying, no, we're intervening with somebody who has type 1 diabetes because we know their lifetime risk is 100%. And that completely changes the game. Yeah, you know what? We have these stages. I don't think anybody should be thinking they're distinct stages. Mm -hmm. It's all part of a continuum. But, you know, we need to classify the stage so that we can do proper research and, and direct certain therapies towards each stage. Absolutely. All right, so then you got these three stages and then you get type one. And for a lot of people that's still DKA, but you know, we'll get into this too, but an advantage of knowing with testing your antibodies is you can be prepared for this and avoid DKA. But at any rate, you're diagnosed. And when you're diagnosed, you still have about 20% of those beta cells that are left. And um, those are valuable, those are worth saving. So a lot of people had a honeymoon period when they were first diagnosed. Did you have a honeymoon? <clears throat> I had a really bad honeymoon once, but uh, back when I was diagnosed. <laughs> we're talking diabetes here. <laughs> um, I, I don't remember, Jeremy. I really don't. But I think it's important to explain it because everyone hears that. Yeah, term. so, you know, I think I had a kind of classic example. So I went into DK when I was 15. Blood sugars were through the roof. My, you know, A1C was literally off the charts. My blood sugars were over 1,000. Um got stabilized in the hospital. I went home, got put on injections. And pretty soon after that, I actually came off of insulin completely for somewhere between like six and nine months. I was off of insulin completely. And that kind of messes with your head, you know, because you're like, well, do I have diabetes? And sure enough, it kind of quote unquote came back. It always comes back. And what's happening in that stage is really important. So when your beta cells get really stressed out, um, I had that flu. It was the final hurrah. My blood sugars went through the roof. Those remaining beta cells get what we call stunned. They're, they have you know uh, glucose toxicity and they mm-hmm. just stop producing. So they're still there, but they get shut down because of the high blood sugars and all the stress. And then when you treat yourself with insulin and your blood sugars become kind of normal, they can kind of wake back up, if you will, and start making insulin again, which is exactly what happened in, in my case. And But unfortunately, that immune process is still happening. Those cells are still getting destroyed. And eventually, I had to go on insulin and you know full insulin therapy. So that honeymoon period is just evidence that there's still cells there that are worth saving. Yeah. And there, there are <clears throat> pediatricians who will leave their patients on insulin, just like tiny doses, so they don't think they're cured. You know, you were 15, but even a five or six-year-old might think, hey, I don't need the insulin anymore. So they actually continue it just so it doesn't mess with their heads. You know, and the other thing too is there there was a large protocol and you're aware of it 
where they tried to treat these new onset type ones with insulin to rest their pancreas based on the same concept that you're just describing. And unfortunately, there was a little bit of positive data, but mostly it did not work. Right. So, you know, here's a stage where someone's just diagnosed, they've got some, some cells that are worth saving. And this is when people get really activated. And I say, you know, this is when people will come find me as a researcher. What can I do? I was just diagnosed or very commonly my son or daughter or brother, somebody, a family member just got type one. I, what can I do to preserve these beta cells or cure them or whatever? So there is a lot of trials going on in this area that I would, you know, kind of deem as um, like preservation of beta cells. Before we were talking about prevention of type one, if you will. Now we're kind of into the preservation stage. And there's a lot of, you know, clinical trials going on in this area that we'll get into. And then after that stage, so first of all, let me tell how this stage is defined. So how do we know, Steve, if somebody is still making their own insulin? Yeah, there's a substance that we can measure, a molecule called C peptide. It, if you can think of when insulin's produced in the beta cell, um, it's got a, a section of it that when you cut it off, we call it C-peptide. Now, naturally, the, when that insulin is being processed, ready for this, through the Golgi apparatus, through the cytoplasmic membrane and released into the systemic circulation, <laughs> the C-peptide is released. And it's a very specific marker for what we call endogenously produced insulin, pancreas or uh, a a pancreas transplant or an islet cell that's been transplanted in. And that's how they measure if these systems and therapeutic interventions are working. It's a very specific marker for the body is producing insulin. Right. And I think if you didn't mention that none of the insulin that we inject contains C-peptide. So you can inject insulin all day long and your C-peptide is not going to show up. It's very specific, like you said, to what your body is doing. So in these kind of like this preservation area, um, they can test your C-peptide. And the the amount of time that somebody will still produce insulin after their diagnosis is very variable. It can be weeks. It can actually be years that people can maintain C-peptide or insulin production. And one of the key variables to that is actually the age that you're diagnosed. That it seems to be that the younger you're diagnosed, the more aggressive the autoimmune attack is. And another reverse way of saying that is the older you're diagnosed, is the, the more kind of smoldering it can be. So if you're diagnosed when you're two, um, your insulin production might go to zero in weeks. If you're diagnosed when you're 52, you might hold on to insulin for five, 10 years. It's, it's really, really variable. Yeah, and some, some physicians think that if you're newly diagnosed, what the best thing you should do is treat yourself aggressively, keep your A1C down, get on a pump or a multiple daily injection, and those people hang on to beta cells longer than someone who gets terrible care, is not into their disease for, for one reason or another, and their A1C is 10%. And I, I kind of believe that too, because you, know, you mentioned a word called glucose toxicity, and that's a real word. You know, when your blood sugars are high, it poisons the beta cell to secrete less insulin than it actually could. We see that in type 2 diabetes as well. Mm -hmm. So this preservation period is defined by basically your C-peptide, which is a, a functional assay of what your, your beta cells are doing. And if you have any C-peptide production, you should count yourself lucky because any amount of insulin secretion we know reduces your blood sugars, reduces complication, actually reduces hypoglycemia uh, because it seems like the, the alpha cells that make glucagon and beta cells that make insulin, they're still kind of talking to each other. Yeah. So if you still have any C-peptide, it's a good thing. What if somebody's listening and they, they're saying, gosh, I've had you know type 1 for 30 years. Should I check my C-peptide? Yeah, I would say yes. Yeah. Uh, and I was just going to mention, that's a good question, is that 
our methods to measure C-peptide are much better than 10 years ago. So they're finding people who have had type 1 a long time that they're still able to measure C-peptide. Yeah. So, you know, if you're going to, you know, the only time you would probably do it is if you entered into a research trial and they wanted to check your baseline level. Right. You're, you're, you can ask your clinician just for curious, out of curiosity, and they might say no. I had mine checked a while ago. Zero. Really? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want to get disappointed because I've had, even though we both got it at 15, you know, I am, I've had it, I'm 25 well, Every years once in a while I swear, you know, there might be a little insulin in there, but nope. <laughs> Anyways, so this uh, period is, you know, usually classically a couple years after you're diagnosed that you're still in this kind of preservation period. After that, you're long-standing, you know, what we call long-standing type 1, which is anybody that's had type 1 for, I would say, more than 5 or 10 years. Chances are you don't have any beta cells left. And the reason this is all important is you can see that across this, this continuum of type 1 diabetes, the disease changes that initially we're talking about. This is an autoimmune disease. We need, you know, drugs or therapies that reduce the, the autoimmune attack to preserve the beta cells. But then at the very opposite end of the coin, people like you and me, you know, I don't care what autoimmune process is happening right now. I don't have any beta cells, so I need to get some back. I started off by saying we can't grow them back, so we need to find ways to replace them and replace them without the immune system getting them again. And that's what we're going to talk about kind of next. Any comments on that, Steve? No, I think you said it quite clearly. Thank you. That was the first time I've silenced the Great Steve Edelman. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's go into prevention specifically in terms of what therapies or what's new and hot. Um, and I want you to kind of take it away here. So, but let me set the stage again now that we're talking about these stage one, two, three, people that are antibody positive, they're at quote unquote risk for clinical type one. What's new in this area? Yeah, actually, this is probably one of the most exciting areas. And just to remind everybody, stage two is when your blood sugars may be a little messed up and you have two or more uh, autoimmune markers for type 1 diabetes. And it's a, it's a anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody called tablizumab. You sound really smart when you say yeah, that. Yeah, I know. I know. I just love it. I wish I had a British accent, too. It'd be, it'd be really impressive. And this, this uh, approach has been studied for 20-plus years. Um, and the company that's now taken over the compound called Prevention Bio, they have tablizumab, and they've done uh, a very interesting study called the TN10. Uh, and you're going to go over those a little bit. But it's a drug, and, you're, and, I, and I appreciate the fact that you explain it better than I do, but it basically slows down the immune attack. And they have very impressive results. They already went to the FDA, and the FDA uh, panel voted to approve it. But they're on hold now because they just have to show that their formulation of tablizumab is very similar to a, a formulation that they used in years past where they have some more positive data. So it's going to be, uh, apparently the FDA is going to make a decision in August. They could always delay it. They could always uh, approve it early. All the data is in. And I, I'm personally uh, uh, optimistic about getting it approved. Both you and I were at the FDA hearing, so we heard the, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and put it this way, it's probably the single most uh, exciting thing in type 1 diabetes closest to a reality. Mm -hmm. Do you agree with that? I do. I, I think it's interesting to talk about these FDA panels really quick, because people are probably oh. interested in how you, these Can we work. cuss on this podcast? Um, yeah. <laughs> but in general, correct me if I'm wrong, because I've been in a couple of these now, they tend to invite about 16 
um, kind of outside experts, and they can be anything. Of course, you'll have in this area endocrinologists, but there'll be statisticians or you know maybe pharmacokinetic pediatricians. People. And there's always one patient advocate on the panel. And the way it goes is it's a day at the FDA in. Um, yeah, the, the company uh, uh, shows their data. Mm-hmm. Then the government physicians. This is like an hour presentation. Yeah. The, the company goes first. Here's why we think it's great. FDA goes second. Here's what's maybe not so great about it. Usually yeah. they kind of do like the counterpoint. They, well, they, they present the data in their own analysis. And sometimes it really is different than the sponsor. Mm-hmm. That's what they call the company. And I would say uh, at the one we went to with uh, Tablizumab, uh, it was amazingly similar. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm kind of optimistic that the FDA understands. But you're going to... Company goes, FDA goes, and there's an hour of an open public testimony where anyone can talk about why they think this drug should be approved or not. And you know, you were there, kind of talking about some of the the, the positive data. I was there as, a, as a, a testimony of you know why it should be approved. Anyways, at the end of the day, they simply vote. You know, these 16 people, yes or no. Um, and I don't remember the exact vote on this one. Do you yeah, remember? it was more people yes than no. Yeah, but it wasn't like a slam dunk. Right. And then um, the FDA takes their opinion and their vote and everything that came out of the meeting, and they make the final decision a few months later. So they came out and they said, um, they said, well, we can't make a decision yet until we look at the, you know, what we call, you know, the pharmacotherapy of the tablizumab molecule that Prevention Bio is producing. Yeah. So it's just, it was interesting for me to go through this process of how drugs actually get approved. But let's talk about what tablizumab is, which is an an anti-CD3 monoclonal antibody. <laughs> I love that accent. <laughs> you like my British accent? Um, all right. So it is, um, that's what it is. But basically what it does is it kind of dampers the, the, the T cells in terms of um, lessening their likelihood or activation to attack and destroy the beta cells. I said earlier, it kind of tells them to chill out a little bit um, and not attack the beta cells. Well, Jeremy, could you just explain a little bit more yeah, so, to our listeners about the killer T cells? And- yeah, so the T cells, in order to get activated, there's a, a couple different molecules that have to bind to certain receptors, and one of those receptors is called you know CD3. And if you block that receptor, these T cells can't be activated, and they can't go and attack and destroy really anything. So that's the idea. Practically speaking, this is an IV or an intravenously infused medication, and in this clinical trial that we're going to talk about the results next it was a 14-day course, meaning patients had to come in and get the drug infused. Usually it was a couple hours um, over two weeks. And that was it. It was that one-time kind of intervention. And then the patients were followed um, for several years. The average time that they were followed was actually for two years, but it went up to seven and a half years and, you know, certain Well, it's patients. still going on. Yeah. So these patients specifically, um, they're type 1 in the stage 2 that you mentioned. So they were, you know, their five-year risk is now 75%. And they were what we call randomized, one-to-one. Uh, that means they were actually just randomly selected to either get teplizumab, this 14-day course, or a 14-day course of, of placebo. And I have you know some specific numbers here, but what would you say is the take-home result of this trial? Yeah. Teplizumab delayed the onset of type 1 diabetes by 32 months at the last cut point of the data. 32 months, and that's the mean which which means that some some of the people that got teblizumab got a little sooner, but some have not even come down with type one diabetes yet, and that's why we use the phrase delay 
and prevent. Because mm-hmm. right now, there are people who, who, who took this drug and have not developed type 1 diabetes after five, six years. So, you know, at the last analysis I have, that the, the percent of people getting type 1 uh, on placebo was 78%. So, you know, almost 80% of the people have gotten type 1 if you didn't do anything. That would be kind of the natural history of type 1. And when they were on this drug, 50% of them got, you know, had developed type 1 by, you know, the last analysis. So showing that, you know, it's not 100% of people that are protected, but it certainly is uh, showing that it's efficacious. And what do you say when people say, uh, you know, is that really a big deal? Like, how do you put this into context? Yeah, well. <laughs> Besides try, wanting try, to punch them. Yeah, well, I was going to say <laughs> slap, uh, thinking of the Oscars or whatever. The, um, the people who say that really have no clue what type 1 diabetes is. You know, they don't know what it's like to come down with it, to crash and burn, and how your life changes overnight for the parents and everyone in the family. And so that's understandable. You know, to get a three to four hour infusion for 14 days, that is such a small price to pay to delay type one or prevent it Mm -hmm. for over two years. Because I think, look at what we've seen in the last two years. We've gone from pumps and the the onset of CGM to hybrid closed loop systems and artificial pancreas. Who knows what we're going to see in the next two years in terms of therapy. And you mentioned this briefly in the beginning, Jeremy, that anybody involved in any type one trial is going to be educated about the signs and symptoms of diabetic ketoacidosis. And those people avoid a traumatic ER visit, hospitalization, uh, ICU, people pricking them, IV lines in. And it's so nice to be prepared for type 1, even if you get it, um, you know, whether you're in the placebo group or you're in the treatment group and you eventually come down with type 1. So I think it has tremendous yeah. benefits. For me, you know, I think I agree with everything you said, but also just thinking about three years in terms of time of, of, a, of a child's development mm-hmm. that, you know, I think about my, you know, kids are three and six. And let's say I knew that the little one at three was going to get it. Gosh, what a difference between, you know, three and six in terms of like mental development and, you know, three years of not taking shots and, you know, just getting their head around what type one diabetes is. I mean, that time is precious. And, you know, if it was two months I would take it, you know, but three years is, is certainly, you know, a big, big deal. Well, Jeremy, uh, knowing what you know now, would you screen your kids? Yeah. So I think, you know, that's, we're going to get into how to do that. Um, is, I think that is changing. My answer to that question is changing now that we are on the cusp of a, of a of approved agent. Because a big, you know, hesitation for a lot of people is, well, gosh, what if I know and there's nothing to do about it? Do I want to know? Do I not want to know? All that. Um, that conversation really changes when it's like, gosh, I can find out and um, there's something I can do about it now. Yeah. You know, I, I, you know, my kids do not have type one. They got tested once over 15 years ago. But at that time, um, there was nothing you could do. And I was the kind of parent that still wanted to know so I could be prepared and other parents just say, no, we don't want to get our kids tested. And I, I respect that hundred percent. Yeah. Um, but now I think things are different. And so there's really coming into a period where we can actually do something about it. Right. So if you want to get tested, um, go to type1tested.com. And there's a couple different ways that you can actually do this. Um, JDRF sponsors a program where they'll actually mail you a kit. Um, it's either low cost or no cost. And you can do it at home and, you know, send the, like, with a finger prick and kind of send it back in and they'll give you results. These were that's, positive. That's amazing. It a really is amazing. Stick. 
And, you know, I would say, though, if you do this, you need to be prepared. Um, to prick your back, finger. Yeah, to prick your finger. <laughs> but if it comes back positive, who are you going to talk to about it? Um, you know, because a lot of the times, you know, the people that are getting tested, they don't have diabetes. They don't have an endocrinologist, you know. So keeping in mind, like, what kind of, like, a plan is. And that's something that we actually need to work out as a society is, is how are we going to roll out, you know, kind of more uniform screening? Um, like I said, what if I did get my brother tested? Um, and he got the results and he says, well, now I need to get a referral to an endocrinologist. And like, you know, yeah, you're right. I never thought of that. Yeah. What happens if you're positive? Yeah. Um, you know, that's, it's important that, um, you know, nowadays because teblizumab is for stage two, no one has any symptoms. And, um, the way they got the individuals to be in this TN10 study was they screened first degree relatives of type one. It's kind of like low hanging fruit, but just to, for the sake of repeating, most people that get type one, like you and I, does not run in the family. Mm -hmm. And I'm hoping that someday that's part of a, a, if it's inexpensive enough and they can put it in routine testing in kids every couple years, just to pick up people early, especially if we have good therapies. We should mention that um, there's a large study that Prevention Bio just completed with teblizumab for people in stage three. So newly diagnosed type one, and that data is uh, forthcoming. So they may have the indication eventually for both stage two and stage three. Now for stage three, they're not. <laughs> the minute you get type one, you're going to be on the lookout for things. Right. You know, instead of emailing, and it's calling different. You. You're right. You don't have to be screened. You know, you you've got it. You've got it. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you if you, I believe it's, uh, you know, I can't remember how long you have to get enrolled. It has to be early, like three months. Um, but I don't quote me on that. And then you can find out if you're a candidate for this therapy. And to me, um, you know, there's no question I would refer, I, I'd bring my kids in for therapy if they tested positive. Uh -huh. All right. So let's leave quote unquote prevention behind and talk a little bit about this preservation category. So you, you kind of nicely segued there. You just got type one. Um, you still have some of these beta cells left. Yeah, you might be taking insulin, but it's nice to preserve these beta cells. What's going on in that area? And there really is a ton of research. So first of all, there's a ton of research going on in all these areas. So talking about people I want to slap, it's the people when they say it's, you know, it's a conspiracy theory. They have the cure, cure for diabetes, but they're not telling us. You know, I'm somebody who's actively doing research in, in diabetes. And, you know, I know a lot of people in this field that it would, you know, kill to have a cure. So that is just completely false. Uh, there's a lot of like dedicated, hardworking people like focusing on, on all Do these people areas. People really say that? Yeah. All the time. I know they do it for type 2. Yeah. Well, and type, more type 2 than type 1, but you still will hear it. So anyways, um, on to other things besides people we want to Preservation. Stop. Preservation. Preservation, yeah. So um, to be in these trials, it's pretty simple. you got to have some insulin production, and you, meaning you got to be C-peptide positive. And all these trials are designed pretty much the same, that you get randomized to go on some kind of treatment or not. And they just follow you over a period of usually a year or two, and they, they measure your C-peptide throughout the trial. And the hope is that your C-peptide um, stays what it was or ideally gets better, but it's certainly better than placebo. So conceptually, I think people can get their head around that. You know, I just got diagnosed. Here's my amount of insulin production. Here's my C-peptide. Uh, let's see if my therapy can help me preserve that. Sorry. So Dompe makes a, a, an oral drug. Oral means you, know, you, you swallow it, which I'm highlighting because it's obviously easier to take than IV. Um, and the, the compound there is called latorexin. And the way it works is, is again, it's, it's an immune kind of deactivator. It specifically blocks this one cytokine called IL-8. 
and, and works more on the neutrophils to hopefully prevent, you know, destruction of the beta cells. So a different approach. Um, but the, the, the needle to thread with any of these, these therapies is that you want to slow down the immune system, dampen the immune system, um, ideally just specifically for the beta cells. But obviously, as we mentioned before, the immune system is very important. And if you get rid of the immune system, you have all kinds of infections, actually cancers, et cetera. So you want to find a therapy that is gentle-ish, you know, that's not going to cause, you know, a lot of side effects and hopefully get good results. And that's hard to do. <laughs> well, that's why um, there's a famous slide that um, Jay Schuyler, a famous type one researcher, shows that there have been 300 studies curing type one diabetes in laboratory animal models you know, rodents, rats, mice. And every time that they had a big press release, type 1 diabetes cured, they try it in humans, and it fails. 300. So we're still waiting. Yeah. I think that number is a lot higher than 300, actually. That's now, all you can fit on the slide. <laughs> it was hard to see the slide. So, you know, so, and that's a good point, though, because the things that actually make it into humans are our best guesses, our best hopes. Um, they have, obviously, animal data uh, that they, they, you know, prevent or re reverse type 1 in animals, and they are shown to be safe in humans. So if people are listening right now, they're probably, they might be thinking, gosh, I just have type, I just got diagnosed, um, my son, daughter, you know, brother, whatever, how do I get enrolled in clinical trials? And actually JDRF has a really good um, kind of like find a clinical trial navigator that you can go online, um, just type in find a clinical trial JDRF, and it's the first thing that comes up. And I give the actual website, but it's actually kind of long. So the best thing is just to search for it. It comes up, and it says match to a clinical trial in 60 seconds. And I actually did this on myself. Hit start, you know, your age, where you live, how far you're willing to travel for a clinical trial, you know, how long you've been diagnosed, some kind of key things. And then in about 60 seconds, it'll pump out some clinical trials that are available in your area. And that's a, that's a really good resource. Yeah, and even even though there may be centers uh, further from your home, now since COVID, they're doing a lot of these trials uh, where the individual doesn't have to be at the site more than once or twice a year, and there's usually funds to pay for that. So if you see something that interests you, you know, the other site I think you're going to mention is TrialNet. Mm -hmm. That's a government organization that's kind of a clearinghouse for all the studies in type 1. You and I know the lady who runs it, Carla Birnbaum. And that's another good area to look for yeah. clinical trials. And not to stress people out, in, like if you're just diagnosed, but the thing about these trials is when you're diagnosed, the, the, the clock really is ticking. Um, that to get enrolled in a clinical trial, you need to kind of act quickly because a lot of these will have like en enrollment criteria that say you have to be within 100 days of diagnosis or sometimes it's, you know, a little bit longer. Um, but if you do want to get involved in a clinical trial, it is something that you should jump on sooner rather than later. Yeah. And if you know anybody that has a child or come down with type 1, you know, the more people in the public like yourselves uh, that can spread the word, the, the better it will be. And the last thing I'll say about funding clinical trials, if you are in an area with an academic center, a university, hospital, that's also a good place to just start. Asking the endocrinology team there, you know, if you're an endocrinologist or ask your endocrinologist to ask somebody at the university, these kind of word of mouth things actually work, you know, actually pretty well. Yeah, and if anybody lives in the San Diego area, um, definitely email TCOID. We'll get it to Jeremy. And he has a big research uh, lab for type 1 studies with a lot of really good young investigators as well. Cool. So the last area is what I would call replacement. So we got folks like Steve and I, we got no beta cells. Um, God, we, you have to say that. And like, we need them. It's like the fourth time you've said it. Well, I, I, I would give mine to you if I had any, but I don't have any. <laughs> um, 
So the idea is we we need to get some beta cells back. So it's it's less about stopping the immune system and more about how do we safely um, and effectively replace beta cells. And there's there's a few ways to do that. And I do just want to mention um, quickly that you can do a whole pancreas transplant. That is an approved therapy. Um, the issues with that is that it's a major surgery. There's a, a limit on how many pancreases are out there. You have to go through a donor. It's typically reserved for people that need a kidney transplant anyways. Um, so it's not a therapy that we recommend for the masses. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. You know, it's, you know, putting the money thing aside, if it worked, it's worth it. But the majority of people that get a whole pancreas transplant, uh, it usually fails. A lot of times they get it uh, when they get a kidney transplant because you have to be on immunosuppressants anyway. Mm-hmm. You have to have a, a higher dose, and it's very hard to harvest a pancreas because the pancreas has all these digestive enzymes as well as the beta cells. And if you don't get it to the right, you know, laboratory ASAP, it like auto digests. Yeah. So I, I don't think it's a viable approach for the masses. Yeah. I agree with you. And the pancreas is a really kind of like gelatinous organ. It's very different than the liver or the kidney that you can take out very kind of easily. Um, it's it's very nebulous, and plus it's full of all these digestive enzymes. Oh, so if, if you held one, it like it would just go through your fingers. Yeah. It's kind of like the glob. And and these digestive enzymes are really toxic. So I've I've heard a surgeon say that like doing a pancreas transplant is like trying to sew a stick of butter to a leather couch. You know, it's just like gooey and globby, and yet like it's just not easy at all. Um, so anyways, I'll leave you with that visual on pancreas transplants. <laughs> so moving into other ways to replace beta cells, if we say, okay, pancreas transplants aren't for everybody, what else can we do? Well, keep in mind that we don't need a whole pancreas. Our, our 99% of our pancreases work fine. The, the majority of the pancreas is actually just for kind of normal digestion. It's these tiny little beta cells that are much less than 1% of the pancreas. That's all we actually need. So how can we get those back? And there's two main approaches to giving those cells back. You can either infuse them into a vein and they can actually kind of take up residency in the liver or you can implant them in some kind of device. So first I'll talk about these infusions. And one of the major breakthroughs we're having now is actually in stem cell therapy that we can generate these beta cells in a lab and keep them alive in perpetuity so, you know, people hear stem cells, they think we're harvesting these from fetuses and things like that. There's enough stem cells in, a, in labs right now to generate, you know, beta cells for every person with diabetes, type 1 and 2 on the planet. This is where, like, stem cells have been really, really remarkable. So you can take those, those stem cells and actually infuse them into the portal vein of, of, of the liver. They can start, you know, living in the liver, more or less, and responding to glucose and secreting insulin. Now, you're doing studies with Vertex, correct? And they've had a lot of press lately uh, in the Wall Street Journal. Their first patient did really well. Now there's a hold, but um, hopefully they, they'll be able to continue shortly. Their approach is infusion, correct? Yeah, they have two approaches. So one is this infusion approach. That's been kind of the first. And then the second is going to be the encapsulation one, which I'll you know talk about now. Um, so the the advantage of the infusion is that it's 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 not a surgery. It's like basically getting an IV and they infuse it. Um, but you still have to take immunosuppressive therapy because these are foreign cells. So the other idea is, well, can we just put these cells in some kind of encapsulated device? Think like a, a thick credit card or something like that and implant them under the skin or in the abdomen. And there's several companies working on that, Vertex and Viacite. And the advantage there is that you can um, you know, contain these cells. And if you design the quote unquote perfect encapsulation device, 
it would be one that would not let the immune cells in, but would let glucose and insulin kind of freely diffuse throughout the system. So you wouldn't need immunosuppression. And so that's why the encapsulation approach is, is, is attractive. And then on top of that, there's another approach when you were mentioning the, the, the CRISPR technology, which is a way of actually modifying these cells to make them, quote unquote, kind of invisible from the immune system. So potentially you could use this CRISPR technology to modify the beta cells, infuse them in the liver, and then the immune system kind of wouldn't be aware that they were there, not need immunosuppression. And then we're getting into like kind of a true cure. Yeah, that's that's changing the molecular structure, the DNA. And that you know, the, the CRISPR comes from the company's called CRISPR. They they did some technology to make vegetables much crispier than they would have if they were straight from the from the from the field. Is that true? No. <laughs> <laughs> but I, but it sounds really good. Um, I was like, I don't know. The, the um, I was talking about. No, but I think I think that's important. I mean, that's the holy grail, Jeremy. Uh, we crispy, know that crispy vegetables. Or? <laughs> <laughs> you know, we know Viacite has had its issues with their encapsulation, but you said it from the very beginning. You did all the original studies that you know this kind of research isn't easy, and uh, they learned quite a bit over the last four or five years. And now their technology is changing, and Vertex as well. So it's just not an easy fix. And yeah. I do think we're going to have multiple quote unquote, if you want to call them failures, before we have some successes. Yeah, you know, we did. Um, the f- very first implant of a patient with these encapsulated, you know, uh, stem cells in 2014. Um, and so I was literally, you know, in the operating room doing this first in the world. And so now it's been eight years and it's not going as fast as anybody would like, but it is moving along. Yeah. We should say thanks to Matt. Yeah. We'll keep his last name off the air for HIPAA compliance, yeah. but Matt was a volunteer and he, his, his implants were not successful, but he contributed to the advancement of this technology. Yeah. Um, Maybe we should get him on here for a podcast. Yeah, yeah. we should. <laughs> um, so I think, you know, hopefully you guys are getting a sense of everything that's, that's going on. And I think we should also highlight that this is all on the backdrop of all of our improvements in technology, CGM, artificial pancreas. So all these fields are kind of moving forward. That, that type 1 diabetes is a, is a really exciting kind of area of research, which ultimately means um, there's developments happening every day. Um, here we are with you know new artificial pancreas systems. Omnipod 5 just getting approved the other day. Now we have maybe teplizumab potentially in August, all these cellular therapies. I mean, this stuff is happening now. And that whole area that, that you're really the leader in, and I, I don't just say that, in adjunctive therapies and the fact that, you know, we have, you know, medications that may attack some other areas of type 1, like the GRAs, glucose receptor antagonists. You ready for that, folks? Um, it's <laughs> easier. with a British accent, please? <laughs> I can't fake it like you do. Of course, yours was terrible. Mine was really, really good. We'll have to, we'll have to <laughs> Eric will do something to our voice with his magic that he does. We should probably just mention for the last time, you know, uh, where to get screened, which yeah. is the JDRF site. Well, the- so yeah, type one tested to get screened. And if you want to be in a clinical trial, honestly, just Google, find a clinical trial, JDRF. And then don't forget, we got a ton of stuff on our website, tcoad.org. Check out our, our video vault. Honestly, everything under the sun in terms of diabetes topics, I think we've covered, have videos, have funny, you know, songs of me and Steve in ridiculous outfits. So please check us out. Um, and hope you guys are enjoying our podcast. If you like it, please comment, follow. Uh, I read all the comments like literally every day to see if like a new one's popped up and no one's commented today. So I'm kind of sad. <laughs> but um, anyways, uh, thanks for doing this with me, Steve. Jeremy, and- I, I learned a lot. And as always, and appreciate this topic is so important. Yes. Take care, everybody.